familiar with nightmares, um, <laughs> it seems, for some reason. Um, I do have them every now and then. So when we read Revelation, particularly this chapter, the references can be quite nightmarish. Um, there's some really scary stuff. It's quite graphic. Um, there's all these creatures and beasts with different heads and crazy things going on. And we'll read the text of the chapter just now. Um, but in this passage, we're going to encounter torturing locusts. Yep, and horses with riders, and then they go about and kill a third of the population. Uh, and it can seem quite terrifying and confusing. And if this was a nightmare, I don't know about you, but I would want to be woken up out of it. So I thought we would unpack uh, some of the passage and explore what seems quite fearful to try and appreciate the bigger story here. So reading from Revelation 9, 1 to 21. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down upon the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not given power to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of a sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man. During those days, men will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails and stings like scorpions, and in their tails they had power to torment people for five months. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek, Apollon. The first woe is past. Two other woes are yet to come. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops were 200 million. I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes having heads with which they inflict injury. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. 
They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood. Idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality or their thefts. Okay, so where do we start? It was quite a bit easier to preach from Revelation 2 a few weeks ago, but... um, this passage is a little bit trickier. Um, if any of you know the sound of music, Sister Maria always said that the beginning was a very good place to start, so we'll go with that. And I found us a picture that might be a helpful way to try and depict what's going on in this passage. So that's an artist's impression um, of those creatures that have been described. So last week we had four of the trumpets from the angels, and chapter 9 starts with the fifth one. And there are heaps of details in these plagues. And we are going to look at a few today, but it's important to remember that the overall picture is what's important here rather than these little details. Um, Last week, John took six verses to explain the first four trumpets and then the plagues that followed. But now we have this whole chapter, which is 21 verses, just to unpack the next two plagues. So last week, we had all of the destruction on nature, you'll remember. And now this destruction seems to shift towards humanity. And the first woe is described as these locusts that come out of this terrifying black abyss to torment everyone who's not marked with the seal of God. Now these locusts are described either as huge or there were millions of them because they were able to cause such destruction. Now we don't really see a lot of locusts these days, but we remember them being mentioned in the plagues in Exodus And also throughout the Old Testament, locusts are seen as a symbol of destruction because they used to travel in these really big, wide groups so that they could like sweep over the whole of the land and strip it bare of the vegetation. So the locusts are described as being almost crossbred with scorpions and they've got poison in their tail that tortures people but doesn't kill them. And apparently this raid is so severe that people will want to find death but can't. So the aim here is that this kind of nightmarish apparition is so terrifying and deadly because these two creatures symbolized for the people who would have originally heard this passage destruction and also pain that can't be quelled or escaped from. But the passage also says that the plague has been sent by God and he has instructed them not to harm his people or even the earth and he's instructed that for a limited amount of time. So somehow it's not described as needless cruelty, but as some kind of consequence to something. So if that was bad, then the next trumpet plague seems even worse, because suddenly there's this cavalry of 200 million troops on fire-breathing horses, and they appear instructed to kill a third of the inhabitants of Earth. So the number of these horses is symbolic of a really big number, and it can't be calculated. So I can't even figure out how many zeros would go after the two in 200 million, but that's because I dropped out of maths as soon as I could. But this group is just meant to be a big number. Um, It's not meant to actually mean 200 million. So it's not like there was somebody with a clipboard standing at the gate of the abyss, you know, counting 200 million and one, 200 million and two, you know, stopping stopping at the big number. So it's just meant to symbolize something really huge. And the Euphrates, interestingly enough, 
represented the border between Israel and all of their chief enemies. So the fear for the people hearing this passage would be of military and political invasion because that was a real um, fear for these people living in that time. And so they would have heard this and it would have reminded them of armies coming into their land, um, killing and taking and you know, pillaging their people. So this sort of invasion terrified them and that's what this image would have summoned in their minds when they heard it, that same kind of fear. And it's actually the horses rather than the riders that seem to be the destructive force. They're the ones with fire-breathing terror and they've got this killer tail with the snakehead thing going on. Now, you may have heard plenty of comparisons between what these sort of things represent, and people have liked to decide that the locusts mean something in our time, as do the riders. The common ones that you hear is that the locusts represent helicopters, and the riders represent tanks in kind of modern warfare situations. Um, But the point of these uh, terrifying and, you know, nightmarish, again, plagues and visions is not, as with previous passages that we've heard from Revelation, it's not to map out a kind of series of destructions that will happen exactly and metaphorically as this passage describes. So what John has done here, and it's really clever and it's part of this apocalyptic literature that Revelation is, is he's weaved together a series of images from history that would have included the Exodus and the words of Joel, which his people would have known, but also symbols from their own culture that in the minds of the readers would have combined to create like a terrifying picture of divine judgment. So as one author says about this passage, in the trumpets and bowls, John has taken some of his contemporaries' worst experiences and worst fears of wars and natural disasters, blown them up to apocalyptic proportions and cast them in biblically elusive terms. The point is not to predict a series of events. The point is to evoke and to explore the meaning of the divine judgment which is impending on the sinful world. So John has gotten his hearers to imagine their worst nightmare, and then he's doubled it, basically. And so the idea of comparing these creatures to things that might be happening in our own time is not really the, the point of the literature that John um, is, is talking his readers through in this passage. But the tragedy we find that comes at the end of this passage, verse 21, is that even after these two plagues, there are survivors who fail to turn back to God. So for some people, this nightmare, whatever this nightmare will look like, will not wake them up. So they will continue their sinful practices. Those who were not killed, as this passage describes, by the fire and smoke and sulfur, did not repent of their motives or of their actions. So somehow watching all of that destruction around them and fearing for their own lives wasn't enough to turn them back to God. But this passage does explain that God's own people have been protected during these plagues. It's almost like in the same way as in the Exodus when the plagues were protecting God's people, but the other people seemed to harden their hearts towards him. So here are the plagues protecting those with the seal of God, but seeming to harden the hearts of other people. 
Now, we also need to remember what comes at the end of chapter 11, which we referred to last week as well. So at the end of all of these plagues, what is the point? Where is this all going? So verse 15 of chapter 11 says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. So the end of this whole thing is going to result in God's kingdom becoming fully realized. So these torches are described as only temporary. But God's reign somehow does include judgment. It even includes God allowing forces to have their way on earth. And we sometimes don't like to think that God's judgment will include that. But this is part of what's going to happen and of what the kingdom of God being fully realized will entail. So repentance and turning back to God is also a natural part of life under God's reign. We know that sin is present in this world and that there is a logical kind of cause and effect relationship. Say, if somebody decides to step off a cliff, then gravity will take over. And if we stand next to them and say that we forgive them, it still doesn't stop them falling off the cliff and gravity taking over. Somebody has to absorb the impact of their fall. It's either going to be them or someone else. And in our case, Jesus absorbed our fall and took on those consequences of our sin. And in these passages, we see that God has this attitude towards sin. He hates it. We should hate it. Sin is not attractive. And as we hear about this black abyss that kind of has all these nightmarish things coming out of it, we might think of sometimes when our own hearts seem black and dark and are not turned and soft towards God. So the use of this word repent is really interesting. Now, in Revelation, it's mainly used in the second and third chapters in the letters to the churches, and then in this chapter and later in chapter 16. The main problem you might remember for some of those churches was their involvement in the culture around them, especially in idolatry. And the warning to these churches is that the idols will keep them away from their true God. And repentance, we read in the Bible, means to transform, to change, to turn from one thing to another. And in fact, it's where we get our word metamorphosis from. So metamorphosis, we know in animals, means an actual body structure changing from one thing to another thing through cell growth. Everything changes. So an animal could go from a tadpole to a frog, caterpillar to a butterfly, from one thing to another. So repentance is also a metamorphic process going from one thing to another, from asleep to awake. John encouraged the church in Sardis back in uh, the first couple of chapters to wake up. So these terrifying images of destruction are explained and imagined for us to shock us out of our sleep. So like a nightmare that we would want to wake up from, they can break us out of our complacency into alertness and softness towards him. One day there will be this judgment, and some people will still choose themselves over God. And sometimes we find repentance can be overused. It's hard to really define what it means, what it looks like, what is it practically day to day. 
I find that, um, and I've been in church a little while, and some of you are a bit older than me and have been in church longer. So maybe you feel the same thing, that this repentance idea can be a bit cliche and we don't really know what it is anymore. But I think to wake up or to repent means to do something active. It's a choice. It's a change. It's a transformation. Something is happening. Something is actively happening. So the people at the end of this passage in Revelation have actively decided to go back and pursue idols. They've actively chosen with their motives and their thought processes and their time um, to put that energy into these idols and not into God. So repentance in the same way needs to be active, an active turning from one thing to another. After being confronted with the power and the truth of God and his grace, we will either make a choice to pursue him or to pursue something else. Now, some of you might know who Brian Welch is. He was in a band in the 90s called Corn. Any Corn fans? Just the one. Good. Um, and they were a metal band in the 90s. Brian Welch was the, one of the founders and the guitarist. Uh, and he lived the typical kind of rock star lifestyle, basically sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Um, and so he had quite a, quite a big life. Um, and he lived this life for a long time, had a daughter that he didn't spend a lot of time with, but um, was always on the road kind of living this lifestyle. And he had a real estate agent um, who one day felt like he should give a verse to Brian um, because he was a Christian. And so he said to, he told Brian the verse um, where Jesus says, to come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. And Brian said that he identified with those things. He felt burdened and heavy. Um, this life that he was living wasn't offering what he thought it would, um, and he felt heavy burdened. And so this real estate agent friend then invited him to church a couple of weeks later. And that day in church, Brian decided to give his life to God. And he said that he actually went home from the service and sat down in his house with some crystal meth which he had in his house. We probably don't have in our house, but he did. Uh, and he was about to smoke it when he felt, or maybe, I don't know, do you smoke I don't even know what you do with meth, but he was about to do something with the meth. Uh, and that's how au fait I am with drugs. Um, so he was about to take the substance when he felt, he said to God, if you're real, prove yourself to me. And he felt such a filling of God's presence and love for him but also of God's love for his daughter and of his own love for his daughter that he felt like he needed to change his whole life. And so he threw away all of his drugs that day. And then he decided to leave the band, Corn, which probably meant leaving a lot of his fans and his friends who were on side with what he was doing in that lifestyle and didn't understand what it meant that he was now a Christian. Um, so he basically turned everything around. And we could see his kind of repentance story um, as like a 360, you know, going from one thing really extreme to another. And he's still a musician today now, which is cool because his songs are just with different themes. He's got themes of redemption and grace rather than what he was previously sharing with his fans. Um, but for most of us, we don't really have that kind of extreme repentance story. Um, and 
as Steve talked about the prodigal son, we may more identify with the older brother than the younger brother. You know, the younger brother goes off and lives the life and has this big um, extravagant lifestyle while the older brother stays behind with his father, probably a little bit bitter along the way. Um, And then the younger brother comes back. But we sometimes identify with the older brother, the one who sticks around, you know, the dependable one, the solid one, always in church, you know, those kind of people. But in the end, both brothers actually needed to come back to the heart of their father. And both brothers needed to repent. It didn't really matter what they were repenting of. Both of them needed to come back to the heart of their father. And so sometimes our repentance can be more like a little shift rather than a 360. It's just kind of moving our focus back onto God and a reminder to come back to his heart. I think it's important as well to know that repentance doesn't mean thinking of ourselves as bad and evil and doing the wrong things all the time because that just leads to feeling guilty And we weren't made to have a life of guilt. That's not what Jesus wants for us. And so it's not just about repenting from something, but it's repenting to something. We're repenting to a life of freedom. And I think in in Galatians 5, 1, there's this amazing verse that says, It is for freedom that we are set free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened by a yoke of slavery. We're not made to live and feel guilty for what we're doing that we think God doesn't want us to be doing. We're made to be living in this life of freedom with our focus back on him, um, living in his grace and acceptance. So today we're going to take part in an exercise of repentance because I think this passage reminds us of the judgment that will be to come, but of also what we experience now. And just as it did for those original hearers, it gives us the chance to repent and refocus back on God. And maybe we don't take those opportunities very often because we don't know what that would look like, how we would practically do that. Maybe some of you do have practices of repentance in your life, and that's great. So you will find, hopefully, unless it's been moved, a piece of paper under your chair um, or under the chair next to you if there's not one there. And in a moment, I'm going to give us a couple of minutes, and I'll make sure it's a couple of minutes and not just 30 seconds, um, where I'd like you to spend some time examining your own life. And I'd like you to think about what you might need to repent of. So some questions to get you thinking. What do you need to wake up from? What actions do you want to include in your life to refocus yourself on God? What more of his freedom and life can you be living in? Consider this week how you've treated yourself, your family, your friends, those you work with, go to school with, study with. How have you treated strangers this week? How have you thought about people? How have you said things to people or thought about them behind their back? Consider where you've put your priorities 
this week? Where have you put time and money and energy? Consider how you might be living in the big story of God and how you might need to shift your focus back to God and back to a life of freedom, not of guilt and condemnation. So take some time to have a think and write something down and then we'll say a prayer together. We don't often just sit still, do we? But repentance is an active process. And so let's consider how we could incorporate this practice into our own lives. And today when you leave the service, unfortunately we can't burn those pieces of paper in here. If you want to take it home and burn it, you can in your own time. But otherwise you could put those pieces of paper in the bins on your way out. There's one by that door, one by that door, and just get rid of it. Um, Let's not be bound by that yoke of slavery, by something else to feel bad about. But let's let that be a symbol of stepping into the freedom that God has for us because we have been forgiven and set free. And it is for freedom that we are set free. So we're going to finish by saying this prayer together. I'll say the first and third bits and the pieces in italics we can all say together. We give thanks to you, God our Father, for mercy that reaches out, for patience that waits our returning, and for your love that is ever ready to welcome sinners. We praise you that in Christ Jesus you meet us with grace, embrace us in acceptance, and affirm us as citizens of a forgiven universe. We give thanks to you that by your Holy Spirit you move us to change direction, receive your love, and become what we most truly are. In darkness and in light, in trouble and in joy, help us then, O God, to accept your forgiveness, to believe your love, and to trust your purpose. Through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shaw Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz.